Welcome to the Gutenberg Podcast, where we discuss the books and ideas which have influenced Western civilization through the curriculum of Gutenberg College. Today I have Chris Swanson back with me to talk about the French Revolution and its consequences. Welcome, Chris. It's good to be back. In a couple of previous episodes, we talked about some of the precursors to the French Revolution, how institutional failures during the Middle Ages and then the Reformation led to people being up for something like the French Revolution. And then we talked about Jean-Jacques Rousseau. One of the major questions that his book, The Social Contract, deals with is asking the question of what confers legitimacy on a government. And so today, our plan is just to talk about some of the general history of the French Revolution and how it terminated in the rise of Napoleon and Europe having to deal with Napoleon as a major problem in the 19th century. So that's what we're going to do today. Chris, tell us a little bit about the French Revolution. What are people actually doing and what are they hoping to gain as the French Revolution gets going? There's a variety of different factions. In fact, this is going to be the case throughout this whole period and a bunch of different people with different interests. There's always going to be a set of what I'll call monarchists or royalists. These are people that want to maintain the status quo. They want to maintain the role of the aristocracy and the king to provide stability and control. There are also a number of the middle class. I don't know if they're exactly middle class, but they're made up of people who are literate writers, lawyers, thinkers, people who have some means and are very influenced by the ideas of the day. These are people who are really excited about changing the political structures of the world, uh, the idea of freedom, equality, fraternity, the rights of man. This was not a huge group of people. It was actually a minority, but they were very strongly influenced by Rousseauian ideas. And then the third faction, I think, is more the populace, the peasantry, the serfs, people who are in the lower classes, who are mostly concerned about things like eating (laughs) and having some sort of livelihood. And there has been over the years, more and more control has been taken away from the peasants more and more control has been taken away from the uh, middle class, for instance. And the people who are gaining more and more control has been the centralized monarchical government. You see that happening, especially under Louis XIV, but it just grows. The church has a great deal of power for various reasons, and they own a huge amount of land. So these factions are working together. And I think the French Revolution is a culmination of both the peasantry who is suffering extensively under the existing system that they were working under, as well as this middle group, this lawyer intellectual group who are very excited about the new ideas. These are the ones that are really the ralliers, the ones that lead the revolution. And it's those two groups, it seemed to me, that are working together that bring around the revolution and 
break out in violence against the state, especially in Paris, where there was famine, these sorts of things that bring everything to a head. So you have people who may have a voice, but not necessarily any sort of political power vying for that political power in the early days of the revolution. One of the observers of the French Revolution, Edmund Burke, who's an Englishman, in fact, I believe yesterday, the freshmen and sophomores were reading Burke's reflections on the revolution in France. He starts writing about the revolution in France really before any of the real terrible things happen. The French Revolution is famous for the guillotine, which originally was conceived as a very clinical way to deal with killing people because it's pretty efficient and theoretically minimizes suffering. But Burke was concerned as this thing was getting off the ground because the thing that had changed was the people who started the revolution no longer felt that the institution of the French government had any legitimacy. And even though there were going to be terrible things to come, the fact that they had turned off the switch that had said, something's going to stop me, or I should stop now, or whatever, that was extremely concerning to Burke. So in the early days, there's this hope that it's almost benign. Could we get better prices on bread, and could we have some kind of representative branch of the government, etc. And over time, there's less and less control of the entire situation. Chris, can you talk about anything that you think is particularly exemplary of how this spirals out of control as it really gets going? Sure. Burke is going to comment on a number of things, but a couple of them that I think are particularly astute is to recognize that the people who are leading this revolution, this is this intellectual class, the people who are leading this revolution and are really pushing for it, they have no real governing experience. They are lawyers, they have some experience in those sorts of things in law and stuff, but they don't really have a lot of experience on how to deal with the affairs of state, how to balance all the various needs and desires and control and manage all of the various affairs that the state has to manage, which is fairly significant at this point in time. And furthermore, they're so excited about their ideology there are no real controls. There are no real stopping points. There's nothing to say, oh, this is a line we probably shouldn't cross. And that becomes more and more clear as the revolution goes on. So you have people that don't have a lot of experience who are willing to cross lines. And as you can imagine, there are also people who are partly out of self-interest, but also out of fervor for the revolutionary ideals, are willing to take control and do things that other people might not be willing to do. So you get people like Robespierre, who in the spirit of the revolution, we want to 
get rid of all the bad things in the world. And that leads to essentially the murdering of a huge number of the aristocrats and eventually the murder of the king, which shocked the entirety of the European uh, continent. All the other kings were extremely shocked by this behavior because it was never even on the docket to kill the king. Killing the king is like extremely inappropriate behavior for any state to do. Particularly by the citizenry. Exactly. At the level that the French revolutionaries were from. Right. Because you did have, we alluded in a previous episode to the English Civil War. Oh, yes. And you had Parliament, ostensibly, and that was part of the, there was an argument to be had there, at least on the part of the belligerents, whether Parliament was legitimate in doing this. But ostensibly, Parliament, which is also part of the government, is doing the beheading of the king. And so it's maybe it's not the same level, but it's the same class of folks doing stuff. And then, of course, you had wars <laughs> throughout. And I think a lot of time there was a preference to exile a king off somewhere so that they wouldn't be a bother and they would be stripped of all power. But sometimes that involved killing. But then again, that's a state doing something to a different state. Right. To have the mere citizenry, so to speak, as they would think about it, come along and kill the king was shocking. Yeah. Another piece of this whole thing, I think, is the desire on the part of everybody involved to improve conditions. They wanted things to get better. They wanted to be out from underneath the thumb of what they saw as a despotic king and a despotic aristocracy who is not concerned about their welfare, who are only concerned about their own needs and so on and so forth. And the peasants and this middle class, they were really interested in making things better. And so the question is, what makes something better, right? Partly it has to be economic conditions, right? But there are other things, freedoms and so on and so forth, that are going to make things better. And part of the problem with the French Revolution is that it is really hard to make things better. There are a lot of things that are out of your control, especially if you're inexperienced, to try and figure out how to make the state and all of the the countryside and so on and so forth to move in the direction that is going to actually improve people's conditions and is very hard to do. And so whenever things took a turn for the worse, then there was somebody else to step in and say, we can do better. And because it was so volatile, and because there were no institutions, no governing institutions, no traditions that would be followed, anybody who was able to gain enough recognition saying, those guys were doing it bad, let's do something better, then you would have another coup, and then another coup, and then another one, and so on and so forth. The number of different backroom deals and essentially political murders and ostracizing of various people out of positions of power. The number of those is is astronomical. No matter who you were, once you got to the top spot, there were people that were looking to take you out. Robespierre eventually falls, and then the next group falls, and you have a directorate, and the directorate falls to the consulate, and the consulate falls to the emperor. I mean, it just keeps going. and, And you have figures like Thomas Paine, and I forget what rank he is, but Lafayette, mm-hmm. who are both significant figures within the American Revolution, 
They go over to France because, man, it's France's turn to do the same sort of thing. And Thomas Paine and Lafayette both get imprisoned. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Like very early on, actually, in the process. And then just are in prison, basically, for the duration of what we're going to talk about here. And they're just wild spots when there are these transitions where somebody's, what if Lafayette was like the new president of whatever thing we've made and they're like yeah and that lasts for about five seconds <laughs> and then they throw him back in like, yeah exactly and it's very volatile and there's no real way of controlling because it's mobbish it's really mobbish and the loudest voice or the most persuasive voice can sway the crowd in some sense and it's incredibly volatile at this period of time I want to float something by you because I was talking to uh, Brian about Edmund Burke and Edmund Burke is very focused on this idea that rights are a matter of inheritance. And there's a very modern notion nowadays that rights just are what human dignity compels people to do morally. And... I think that's one way to talk about rights that makes a lot of sense. Why is it that we can't just steal from you? Well, you're a human being. But I think that the reason why Burke emphasizes rights being a matter of inheritance is because if you don't have a government that can provide you with the things, then those can't be rights in a certain sense. Part of what keeps happening within the French Revolution is the revolutionaries want bread to be so cheap, but also we want this new, totally new governmental structure. And also we want a functioning army that can defeat all of the other armies of Europe because we need the win real bad. And they just keep trying to make these projects and the government isn't stable enough to do any of those things. And so that's very strange sounding when we think of our modern conception of rights. And I think there's a way to talk about rights where the moral dimension of it is important. But I also think sometimes governments just don't have enough resources to be able to provide the sorts of things that even that are like morally required. (laughs) There are, there may be priorities in terms of Let's not have everybody dying (laughs) in the scheme of rights that a government has to prioritize because it just doesn't have the wherewithal to deal with all of that stuff. Well, that's a huge subject. Sure. Sure. (laughs) I mean, rights is a very, very complicated um, concept, and it um, it is not very well talked about or understood and the basis of rights are not very well clarified, especially in our culture today. And I think that the source or the foundation of a person's rights is it's a difficult subject to talk about because there's so many different possible sources, one of them being Burke's the government provides people rights through the history and the tradition of what the government is doing. There are the idea of natural rights. There are rights that could be established by a theistic moral perspective or something like that. Although I think 
personally that the more appropriate way to think about that is responsibilities rather than rights. I think that's a much more fruitful way of talking about how we should interact with each other and we, and the government should interact with us, that people have responsibilities and the government has responsibilities. So this is hard to untangle. Would you agree that the reach of what the French revolutionaries expected a new government to do exceeded its grasp. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, and I'm just positing, and maybe this this merits more looking into Burke, because, because there is the way of thinking about rights, which is whatever the government gives you, but I wonder if it's, that's more of a positive statement, and I wonder if it's more of a negative statement. It's You, you have a lot of things that you, as a human being, your dignity demands, but what is a government actually in a position to give you? Exactly. Right? Let's take the Middle Ages. Demanding the protection of national borders during the Middle Ages is an insane proposition. We can't even, we can barely control the fields that feed this castle. You mean we got to go out to like the borders of England and protect that too? It's not within the ability of the government to provide that. Mm -hmm. And so it's not a right in that sense. It's maybe this is too new in my own thinking for us to really be talking about that, about this, but the French revolutionaries go, what's the ideal state look like? We should get all of this stuff. Why aren't we getting all of this stuff? And part of what they're running into are the limitations of a totally new, unstable government with people who do not know what the consequences of their policies and programs will be just trying new stuff out. Yeah. And on the one hand, that's extremely tragic, right? Because they just, because as you were saying, people really did want to improve things, but they really had no idea what things would improve. Fairly early on in the revolution, they start a war in Europe, basically being like, if we win, it'll boost morale. And, and we'll have this patriotic fervor and then we can get s- stuff moving yeah. and we won't be in this malaise. And what happens is that never goes well. <laughs> yeah. Never so, to start a war in order. This war will be over so fast. It never goes like that. There's the fracture that's going on internally among all of these various factions and needs and desires. But there's also an international aspect to this whole issue. And this leads in a little bit to the rise of Napoleon as well, because like you say, there was a desire on the part of the various governmental structures that take over and change over time in France to spread the revolutionary ideals. And, but also there was a reaction from the international community back on France, because as they were looking at what was going on, they were appalled. And they were concerned that this revolutionary spirit might spread through their countries. And the kings and the monarchs of Europe were looking at that and saying, nope, we don't want that. So it turns out that there were a couple of different international coalitions that joined together 
partly because of some aggressions on the part of France, but also partly on a great deal of fear that the revolutionary spirit would fall into their country. And they wanted France to go back to a monarchy. They wanted to restore a monarchy in France to provide stability, to get rid of this terrible revolution and let things go back to the way they were. So these coalitions, uh, there's like the first coalition of 1792 to 1797. So this is in the late period of the revolution. And then there's a second coalition from 1798 to 1801. And these are countries that are making alliances with each other. The alliances are spur-of-the-moment alliances. They are shifting alliances. Let's get together and conquer France, especially those that are right on the border of France. There are some people that are trying to stay aloof from the wars. I don't want to be involved in this war. It's not something that we want to involve ourselves in. It's going to cost us a lot of money and manpower. But France is, for better or for worse, they're the biggest kid on the block at this time. They have uh, a fairly substantial economy. They have lots of population, lots of land, money. They are able to pay for munitions and and raise armies and so on and so forth. So other countries are definitely taking note. And part of what comes into it, particularly with Napoleon, is... There's a expansion of who is part of the military. There was a kind of patriotic fervor that informed the Napoleonic forces that in other countries was left to professionals. Exactly. And suddenly you had an entire citizenry of a country being involved. And that's going to lead to, I mean, the American Civil War and then the world wars at the beginning of the 20th century are so horrible in part because they mobilize regular people right in a way that had not been done before right now in the revolutionary war you had a lot of citizenry fighting but that was because it was like we're defending our homeland but in terms of taking your citizenry and making them an army that could work for the state that was a sort of unique development that napoleon brought to the table absolutely absolutely so the, the size of the armies is is substantially larger than any kind of army size that have, has ever been seen before and part of that is because the French were able to muster this ideology and this fervor for for the French Revolution and the French ideals and liberty and so on and so forth, and let's fight for the state. And as you said, it seems like a good policy to retain the central power if you can get everybody on your side. So rather than fight internally, we can fight the external um, bad guys, and that joins everybody together in this endeavor bring solidarity in the country and so on and so forth. Before we move on, I think it's also worth noting that you mentioned earlier that there was a lot of international backlash. France is a colonial power already at this time, and Haiti is part of the French colonial holdings at this time. And when the French Revolution first gets started, one of the first things that they do is they abolish slavery. The new government is not capable of sending resources to Haiti And so Haiti is theoretically part of this French empire that now has abolished slavery, but there's all kinds of interests in Haiti of keeping slavery being a thing. And so the Haitian revolution is an outworking of 
the French Revolution that kind of end up being separate from each other once you get that initial thing, because French government is not in a position to be intervening. Napoleon, when he rises to power, tries to get over there and tries to deal with the situation, but everybody dies of malaria and that doesn't work out so well. So it's not only the fact that you have monarchs being shocked at this behavior, but you have France as a government had a lot of interest all around the world, and when it no longer has the wherewithal to affect those things, the populations that are under the French government nominally, they don't know what to do. And it that leads to all this chaos internationally that's not just, oh no, what are we going to do about the monarch of France dying? It's, oh no, like we're a colony of France and there isn't a France anymore, really. <laughs> and yeah, that no, sort of has a... Has some, it definitely has some waves that spread out throughout Europe at this point in time. So as I was saying, there is this these coalitions that form. The second coalition in particular is interesting. It's the more powerful of the two coalitions. It's formed of countries like Britain, Austria, which was quite large at that time, Russia, which was huge, the Ottoman Empire, which is enormous. That's all the Middle East and Turkey, all that area over there. Portugal, Naples, and Italy, those sorts of things, German monarchies. There was a huge number of people and, and governments that rose up to fight against Napoleon. Not all of them had been historical friends. In fact, Russia and the Ottoman Empire had been going at each other's throats for a long time. They were great enemies, but things were becoming so alarming with the rise of the French armies and Napoleon's successes in a variety of places and his attacks that it actually drew in more enemies to these coalitions, making it essentially a, a huge European conflict, not just a local conflict in small amounts. So almost everybody in Europe is brought into this war against Napoleon. So the revolutionaries start wars in an attempt to get this patriotic fervor going. Napoleon is an officer when this first starts going, and he he acquits himself very well. And so as the events of the revolution start spiraling out of control, people start being in the market for somebody who can just make all of the guillotining stop. And Napoleon is somebody who sort of fits that bill. Yeah, it's very complex. He, like you say, is very successful in the military. He's very charismatic. He is very smart. He's been studying in France for a number of years in the military schools. He rises as an art artillery officer. He becomes very successful. He introduces some new techniques in terms of the speed at which the artillery can fire but also the speed and movement of the artillery. And by making these advantages and having this very keen sense of how to propagate or to pursue the war, he's very successful. And in fact, he becomes so successful that he starts developing a name for himself. He goes down into Italy. And even though he's not the chief officer, he makes a number of of victories in Italy and up into Austria and so on and so forth and conquers a lot of territories in those areas and becomes quite a celebrity, in fact. And he comes back to France for a period of time. He's well-regarded. He's considered as an important factor now because of his successes. 
And there's one period of time in particular where those who are in charge, this directorate at the time that are concerned about another uprising from the peasants, and they call on Napoleon and say, can you put down the peasant revolt? And he says, sure. And so what does he do? He uses his artillery. But because there's mobs all over Paris and they're in big cities and so on and so forth in these squares in the city, rather than using standard cannonballs and things of that sort, he fills his cannons with grape shot and chains and nails and various other things like that and indiscriminately shoots into the crowds, which of course is incredibly vicious and destructive, kills a lot of people, but it was very effective as well. So he becomes, in some sense, a tool of the various people who are in power. And in fact, he becomes so popular that they're like, we better send Napoleon away before he takes too much power. So at this point, they send him off to Egypt and say, go and try and control Egypt. And the Egyptian campaign is the source of the famous Rosetta Stone. Correct. So he brings a bunch of scientists down. He's very, because they're not just propagating war, they're also thinking about it in terms of all these enlightenment ideals and science and the future and rational law and meritocracy and some of these other sorts of things that everybody's excited about. So he brings all these scientists down and they start studying Egyptian culture and writings. They find the Rosetta Stone that allows them to start translating hieroglyphics. It's a huge breakthrough. He's very successful in his campaign militarily and so on and so forth. He does, however, have one significant problem. He parks his fleet in Alexandria in a port there at the mouth of the Nile. And Lord Nelson, who is part of the British fleet, sneaks through the Mediterranean, bypassing other French ports in the area and lands upon their fleet and sinks almost the entire fleet while still in port. They have no chance of getting out. So this is a major victory for Nelson and the English because now Napoleon has no way of getting home, right? He decides he's going to march up through Israel and try and get home on a land route, and they run into some stiff opposition up in the Middle East area from people who have risen up against him, and he's not having much success. He doesn't have very good way of providing for his people. He's not in a place where he can get back easily. So he actually loses a great deal of his army. And we find him doing something that he does multiple times. He escapes his army and and sneaks back to France, <laughs> leaving the army decimated in Egypt or something along those lines. But he's very clever. He eventually works politically amongst those who are in charge and maneuvers things. And there's a coup in 1799 that he is a part of. He is just one of three people who are part of this coup of getting rid of this thing, which was called the directorate, which was five people in charge. But it wasn't just the five. There was also an assembly and another body. There were a couple of bodies that would elect the directors and so on and so forth. But these guys manipulate and work behind the scenes. And Napoleon and two other guys become consuls, which is a word coming out of the Roman world where you have people who are in charge. And they are able to eradicate these councils, the, the 500 and so on and so forth. And they are able to aggregate power to themselves, just the three of them. So we have a strong centralization of power that has not happened to this point. It is, in some sense, against 
some of the revolutionary principles that the people are in charge and so on and so forth. But because Napoleon is so popular, he maneuvers in such a way that he becomes first consul and the others feel like, oh, we were outmaneuvered here and now what are we going to do? And in not that many more years, he decides he's going to crown himself emperor and takes almost complete and utter control over the entirety of the French state. He is not a great diplomat on the interior. He doesn't do a good job running the interior side of the state. I think it's partly because he has developed the fame of the military class and he's boosting the military and their prestige and so on and so forth. And in the process of boosting their prestige, he starts giving them control of the state. And these guys are military guys. So as far as they're concerned, the way you control the state is you give orders and people respond and do what you say. But the reality is that you always have to compromise and make deals and get people on your side and so on and so forth. And they didn't know how to do this. So it was not a great situation for the interior, for the domestic side of things. But on the international front, he was still very successful. He would go and he would figure out a way to bring a country into a major battle and he would defeat them in the major battle. Then he would march on the capital. He would take the capital, force the monarch to sign a treaty where France is in charge, so on and so forth. And he was very successful in this sort of thing. How should we think about Napoleon as a human being, as a historical figure? I think there are popular tellings of certainly the opposition to Napoleon. There's a lot to be said for if you're somebody like Burke and you're concerned about this breaking of norms that's taking place at the beginning of the French Revolution, seeing Napoleon as the inevitable emergence of some kind of tyrant, almost in the Aristotelian sense of democracy is corrupted and you get mobocracy and so you have to have this tyrant come up and control everything. There's certainly a way of looking at it in that sort of tradition of seeing him as being tyrannical. On the other hand, apparently he was very interested in meritocracy for his generals. He made a lot of advancements in terms of providing logistical support for his troops. Apparently there were certain and what they are escapes me off the top of my head, but there were certain civil rights which he conferred on people that were unique or innovative on his part. There's one version where he's the tyrant and that's a threat, and then you can have the response to that is, they were all monarchs anyway. Of course, it's in their best interest to paint him that way, and he was actually a great guy. How do you think about Napoleon as a figure and how all of that shakes out. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I'm not a huge scholar in terms of studying Napoleon carefully, but my sort of not super well-informed take is that it was a combination um, on the one hand of his certain personal characteristics of charisma, ambition, desire for success, um, moving up, that sort of thing. There has to be a good amount of that in anybody who is taking on the role. He has just this incredible 
strength of character, this will, this domineering kind of and side. Competence. And competence as which, well. He's which also, they did not have he's, previous, right? He's brilliant. He's not getting ahead just because of his ambition. He's yeah. getting ahead because he wants it, but he's also incredibly skilled. Yeah. He's very smart in terms of the waging of war. He's very smart. But he's also got, in just, so I guess there's three pieces. One of them is this sort of this strong personal character. The second is this incredible competence that he has. But the third one is he really does imbibe this Republican, rationalistic, enlightenment view of the way that the world should run with freedom for all. And he goes around. One of the things that I find so fascinating is he conquers all these lands, sometimes small states, sometimes large states. And in every case, he goes and he sits down and he writes constitution, a new constitution for this people. And then he puts somebody in charge, a family member or a general or something like that, and says, go and do likewise. Be this modern new state in the enlightenment ideal with freedom and representation and all the things like that. So it's a combination of all of these different pieces that come together all at once that seem to me characterize Napoleon and his successfulness. Napoleon has trouble down in Egypt. He gets back to France. He becomes emperor eventually. And he has these grand ambitions to spread this French revolutionary enlightenment, these sorts of ideas around the world. So what happens then? (laughs) Eventually, there's no way that he can control all of Europe by himself. There's just no way. And there's just too many interests. There's too much power. There's so on. There's too many different people who don't want to be controlled by him. He loses, I would say he loses in four main ways. The first way he loses is he loses the support of the literati. People who saw him as this great, amazing, enlightenment figure, they turn on him. And part of the reason why they turn on him is that his soldiers and generals, which are not all French now because he brings in new soldiers, they are required to supply a certain size of army after they've been conquered to go help fight in other wars. These soldiers are going around and they're not treating the populace well. They are stealing, they are eating all their food, they are treating the women poorly, they are also shaming the monarchs and the aristocracy in these places. And he's not able to control his armies in such a way as to treat the conquered peoples well enough that they are not going to be really angry at him. And as the news of these kinds of atrocities, in fact, they are atrocities, get out, the literati are turning on Napoleon and saying, I'm not sure that this guy is the hero we thought he is. Another way that he loses is in Spain. He goes into Spain thinking it will be an easy conquering, or he sends somebody else, a general, and Spain runs away and does guerrilla warfare. It takes a long time and a lot of resources away from his other wars. He always wins, almost always wins, but he's fighting against Wellington, who eventually defeats him, and Wellington is constantly retreating and regrouping, 
and encouraging Spanish guerrilla warfare, and it's just a big mess. So a lot of his resources that should have been available for other wars are all taken up in Spain because of the cleverness of Wellington and his methods there. Another piece of it, I think, and probably the biggest one, is Russia. Okay, so Russia is where he finally really starts to lose. He gathers armies from all of the places that he's conquered, the French, the Austrians, everybody. He puts them together in this massive army because Russia, of course, has been changing its alliance. And at one point they were on sort of neutral and then they become non-neutral. And so Napoleon says, it's time, I'm going to go conquer Russia. And so he sends in, he's got, um, some people count as many as 650,000 people in his army. And he marches over in the summertime towards Russia. It's actually a long ways to Moscow. It is a very long ways if you look at it on the map. So it's going to be many months to travel all that way. And they make steady progress, of course, feeding themselves off the land because there's no way that they can have a supply train to feed them. So half of what the armies are doing is going around finding places that they can find food, but it gets really hot and people are starting to die of heat exhaustion. And the Russians, once he finally gets to Russia, the Russians are one of the countries in the world that is most capable of suffering well. (laughs) (laughs) So as the French are coming, what the Russians do is rather than be defeated, they start burning all the lands and killing all the food and so on and so forth and taking away the provisions of the Napoleonic army. This is a classic classic Russian approach. Yes, exactly. Problem. And Russia is so large that they do this a lot. They just pull back. They do. They continue to pull back and pull back. Napoleon, eventually the army start having to eat their horses and so on and so forth. They have a lot of sicknesses. They're overcrowded and such. Eventually there's this major battle with Russia. And of course, Napoleon wins. And Napoleon says, okay, I finally, I won. I beat Russia. I'm going to march into Moscow. I'm going to take the czar and I'm going to force him to sign a treaty and I will have conquered Russia and I can go home and everything is... No. Right. (laughs) The czar runs away. (laughs) Right. Everybody leaves town. And they burn Moscow. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So there's nothing left there. There's no place for them to stay. It's wintertime. It's coming on. They have no provisions. And the Russians know how to suffer through the wintertime. And the French don't. They don't have the places to go. They don't have family and so on and so forth. And everybody's against them there. And so, you know, at this point, Napoleon's, it's time to head back. And by this time, they've lost a lot of people for injury. They've lost some in death. They've, lost, they've had actually a large number of desertions because not all of the people are French. And even the people who are French are not necessarily there of their own free will. So there's been a huge number of de- uh, desertions. He starts to head back. He's lost a huge number of people by this time. The number of people that are heading back I don't know. There's different numbers that people say, but at this point, maybe 95,000, 100,000 people are starting to head home. But it's the Russian winter, dead of winter. They continue to eat their horses. There's guerrilla warfare. The Russians are stuck in these little houses and staying warm by the fire. And the French are trying to go through there and they just can't find any place to go. And by the time they get back, of course, Napoleon leaves. And leaves the army behind as usual. But by the time they all get back, there's about 20,000 men. That's a huge loss. 
And he's not completely dead here, but this is a major defeat. And so this is the end, essentially, for Napoleon. He goes and he eventually has a a battle in uh, the Battle of Leipzig against a coalition of forces there. And he loses. And what does he do? He runs away again, but he's caught. This time he runs away, he's caught, and the British catch him, and they send him to the Isle of Elba Elba in exile. And everybody's, oh, yay, the war is over. He's there for about 100 days. And then a bunch of French nationals say, oh, we need Napoleon again because things are going crazy and terrible in France. And so they spring him from the Isle of Elba, and he marches north through France and Again, the army swarm to him because of his notoriety, his strength of character, and everybody's excited about him. And eventually there's a war in Waterloo, a battle of Waterloo, and and against Wellington. It's really very close battle, and Napoleon eventually loses. And I'm sure that if you can get online and go and study the Napoleon buffs, and there's a gazillion details of how that battle went. It's very interesting. But Napoleon loses and he runs away again, again caught by the British as he's escaping by boat. And this time the Brits are like, we're not going to let this guy go again. So they take him to an island in South Africa, (laughs) a long ways away. And the British troops are in control and they watch over him until he eventually dies. So that's the end of Napoleon. And there's a huge treaty a grouping of all the countries that were part of this war against him, England, Russia, Austria, are some of the main ones that gather together and into this Congress of Vienna, I believe it's called, in 1815. And they basically redraw the map of Europe. And at that point, there is a huge desire on the part of most of Europe to no longer have war. They're exhausted. There's been so many people who have died in these wars, they're tired of the French Revolution, they're tired of the instability, everybody wants to go and have a certain amount of peace and restoration, so there's a desire to return to monarchical kind of systems and so on and so forth. But as before, the factions are still alive, you still have the royalist monarchical groups, you still have the intellectual revolutionaries, you still have the peasants, the peasants are now suffering from famines and there's just a huge vying for power at this point after Napoleon is gone throughout Europe. It sets the stage for this give and take, this these small little revolutions all over the place, these skirmishes. There's no major European battles between countries, but there's all these smaller places. There's a growth of technology, there's a a growth uh, of a desire for suffrage from the people to make their situation better. The monarchs would love to return to the old ways, but there's no way at this point. There's been too much change, there's been too much freedom, there's been too much revolutionary ideas that have spread. The idea that the peasants are going to stay in place and simply suck it up and live the way that the monarchs want to do it, That's that is, those are gone. In fact, feudalism, I would say, feudalism is dealt a death blow. The idea of the aristocracy being in control of, of the manors and estates and the serfs having to work the land for the aristocrats, it's gone pretty much everywhere almost immediately after the French Revolution, except for a couple of places 
Russia holds out for quite a long time and a few other places, Romania and some other states, hold on to serfs for a long period of time. But the social political structure of Europe is completely and totally changed. It's eradicated. There is no way they're ever going back to that feudalistic kind of system with aristocrats in charge and the serfs having to to work the farms for the aristocrats. It's much more um, cosmopolitan, but also more in the control of the populace. The populace feels like they have a voice. There's union strikes, strikes against the country, strikes against industrialists. There's just much more of a sense of among the people that we should have more control. We should have more voice in what is going to happen. It's essentially, it's the birth of the modern state is what's happening. It's going to be really messy. It's going to be complicated. There's going to be so many different issues. There's going to be issues of technology, issues of industrial revolution, issues having to do with political changes. There's going to be issues with poverty and famine and just all over the place. But there's going to be essentially the next hundred years is a struggle for nations forming the nation and elections forming and no longer it being in the hands of hereditary monarchs and hereditary nobles and things like this. It's a, it's a complete wash and change at this point in time from what happened before the French Revolution. You have that, at least as a heuristic, the dynamic that is uncovered during the Napoleonic era Mm -hmm. of every citizen being part of the army becomes true of the nation that we need everybody to be a part of this thing in order for this thing to be successful. And that spirit continues after this point, even though the French revolution per se and Napoleon specifically ended and done away with This idea that the citizenry has much more to contribute and thus gain from the success of each nation is like a big part of. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's the growth of a awakening citizenry who wants to have more and more say in the stake and a stake in how things move forward. It's a hard slog. It's a very difficult slog, but you can see it happening in lots of little ways over the next hundred years. It gives rise to the working class. That's where we're going to get Marxism is going to come directly out of these workers who are gaining more sense of themselves and their ability to control their circumstances and control the industrialists who are abusing them and so on and so forth. There's a lot of those sorts of things that are happening, uh, that are coming out of this world. As folks who are thinking about this period of time, what do you think the main takeaways that we should have from this period Obviously, there is philosophical thought like Rousseau's, which is asking questions like, where does government get its legitimacy from? You have political thinkers like Burke, who just make the observation that if 
you decide that government institutions have no legitimacy, there's nothing to stop you from snowballing into something awful like the French Revolution. And there's a lot of thought about, we return to some of this thinking, it's sometimes referred to as like great man theory of history. But Napoleon is this exceptional figure, gets people start thinking about how do I be so exceptional? How do I be a part of history? He's a figure like Caesar. He, he makes people want to be that person. So obviously, we've alluded to those sorts of ideas already floating around, but what other ideas or consequences do you think are important for people to take away from the French Revolution and then from Napoleon's rise and fall? The thing that strikes me is the most important way to think about this whole shift is it is really very much a shift from an aristocratic and feudal world where there was a clear hierarchy of control. There was an expectation in the part of the masses that they had no voice, that they had no ability to control things and make changes for the better for themselves. It is a major shift from that to a partly because of the excitement and the ideology of the enlightenment and freedom and these ideas that have been simmering for a while in the intellectual world. It opens the door for more popular control, more popular voice in the behavior of society and government. It completely gets rid of that old feudalistic monarchical world and is completely replaced by a new world order. It's the development of the masses in some sense, in a way that has never been before. And it ushers in the power in some sense of the masses. And we're going to see that in all kinds of different ways in the 20th century. And so that to me is the biggest shift that's happening here. And I think Napoleon is instrumental because Everybody was involved in the armies. The ideology was spread everywhere. There was a huge reaction to him. And we don't want all this war. We don't want all this suffering. But it was also an emancipation in some sense of we the people. We get to be part of this thing. We get to be a part of it. Yeah, yeah that's that to me is the biggest shift that's happening. And that's why thinking about Napoleon is a little bit complicated because he is simultaneously the tyrant and the inspiring leader. Yes. yes. And it largely depends on which side of the battlefield you're on. <laughs> it has always been the case, if you go and look about the nature of tyrants and you look at what the Greeks talked about the tyrants, the tyrant is the person that has the masses sort of populist. It's the populist, popular person. And Napoleon epitomizes that. He was incredibly popular and he was incredibly beloved by the French people all through that time until the end. But even at the end, there were many that really saw him as their savior and somebody who was going to bring enlightenment to the whole world as this major popular figure. He was not somebody that was coming from 
a traditional monarchical, it was very much a popular thing. It was a breakdown of tradition with a new popular leader that takes control. It's a scary position for a state to be in. Because again, there's no controls over what he can do. And he just went crazy. I think another important takeaway from this period, which is somewhat earlier and we were alluding to a little bit, is first of all, you want competent. We Bureaucracy tends to get thrown around as a bad word. Right. And it can become the case that bureaucracy is slavish to regulations or whatever, and the humanity is gone, and that that be, does become a problem. But you want people who know what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> and the people who were in charge of the French Revolution did not know what they were doing, and it had these disastrous sorts of consequences. But tied to that, I also think it's I think it's a very interesting dynamic because on the one hand there is a kind of the these leaders are pathetic right in that they not as an insult but you feel for them in some sense right you we have all been in positions where we have been expected to accomplish something and hadn't the slightest idea how to do it and our best attempts did not go the way that we expected (laughs) but but there's something to the fact that just because you are pathetic does not absolve you from your moral culpability. Right. And that's such an interesting dynamic that's at work in the French Revolution because there's a kind of banality to what happens where all of this evil is happening and some of it is very clearly, oh, I hate that person and I want them dead. But some of it is, I don't know what else to do to make things better. And the suffering that is caused either way (laughs) is the same. And that's a very painful reality of humanity's lot a lot of the time. We have learned, and this is Burke's concern, we have learned a lot of how to make things work through a lot of pain. And if you decide there's no value in learning from any of that stuff, then you just have to learn all of those lessons all over again. Yes, there is something very valuable about tradition and systems that have been put in place that that sort of work, or they're always give and take on those situations. But generally speaking, there is something to be said for expertise. Right. Chris, we have now spoken about the French Revolution and Napoleon and have set folks up for discussions and have set the groundwork for books that we might discuss coming up that have to deal with the masses and just where Europe is as we're moving into the 19th century and where world history is headed as we're headed towards the 20th century and the world wars and so on. So thank you for coming on and talking about this period of time with us. It was my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. And we will be back in a little bit to talk about more books and ideas which have influenced Western civilization through the curriculum of Gutenberg College.